Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. afternoon to you on this lovely fall afternoon. Welcome to a new episode of Blockhead. Today we have the second part of our two-part interview with Robert Pope, illustrator of so many uh, variations and uh, current adaptations of Peanuts, uh, the most recent of which is Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown from Boom Studios, soon to be followed by Snoopy, a Beagle of Mars that should be out sometime very shortly, and uh, also uh, the illustrator for a whole host of uh, children's adaptations of of Peanuts for Simon & Schuster. So uh, last time we talked lots about Peanuts and we continue the discussion today. Uh, Robert is just a great raconteur, wonderful uh, storyteller, has lots to say about Peanuts and comics in general and comic strips in general. And that's the subject for today, as well as Robert's own work. So uh, sit back and uh, put your feet up and have a listen uh, to Robert Pope and myself in discussion time the first time you get a, a, a job with a name character you, it's the most incredible thing you've ever done in your life and then a couple of years later you're like yeah yeah fred flintstone you know you're, <laughs> you're you're not just working but you you are working and, and i think that for the lay person for a person who is not working in a creative endeavor i think it's very hard for them to see that you can have a great deal of affection for something but it is a job yeah. Uh, you know, Jim Henson said at the end of the day, Kermit the Frog doesn't go in a glass case with lights. He goes in a cardboard box. <laughs> now, when that puppet comes off my arm, I'm done. Yeah. And um, and, and uh, I think a lot of times people have uh, uh, people are are slightly uh, taken aback or put back on their heels when they see. And they're, they're varying degrees of this. I think some artists are more emotionally invested in, in characters than others, certainly artists that create their own characters. I, I discovered a long time ago myself that I don't necessarily have a writer's voice. And as Sparky said, the young cartoonist tends to draw cartoons of other cartoons. So mm -hmm. like everybody else in this business, I had this ambitious idea for syndication and this, that and the other. And, you know, most of my early tries were uh, rebuffed with an occasionally pleasant handwritten note that pretty much said, you know, we're, this we've seen this before. It's well drawn, but we're seeing a lot. You know, there's nothing new here. And um, and uh, including uh, a, a Universal Press letter, uh, Universal Press Syndicate letter that said, you know, maybe you should think about animation. Your stuff has a real bouncy animated quality to it. I'd never given that a single thought. Um, and I didn't apply that uh, learning or I didn't apply that particular bit of advice for about three or four good years. After I got that letter, I was still in high school and I was trying for syndication. I found out fairly quickly that, that I didn't really have an original idea in my head. And, um, and, I, and I think, as I think it's been pointed out before, Mark Evanier, the writer and historian, has said, uh, speaking of Jack Kirby, uh, 
he has said that that uh, not every cartoonist is a particularly good writer, but most all cartoonists have to have a kind of writerly ingenuity. You yes. Know, when Jason gives me a script, there are certain aspects of that script that, frankly, don't work as well as they ought to because of where I'm trans, you know, how I'm transforming it to be a visual instead of the printed page. And, and so you have to have some ingenuity to take things and extrapolate them and wheel them around a little bit and still maintain the integrity of what the script is in, and still be in service of the script. Um, you know, Richard Williams, the, the animator who just passed away recently. Yeah. I was very, very fortunate in um, 97 to go and do his master class in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Uh, it was just three days of epic, crazy drawing as fast as you could because he was, he was, there was no book back then. He hadn't even thought about the book yet. So he was on a dry erase board, just drawing as fast as he possibly could. Wow. And filling up sketchbooks, trying to race along with this man, you know, who was literally trained by, you know, Grim Natwick and, and Ken yeah. Harris and all these, you know, old from Disney and Warner Brothers, and and I just did total awe of the man. He, he, you know, he said when when Bob Zemeckis hired him for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he became in essence Bob Zemeckis's pencil. The way that he would have done it was it was incidental. It was Bob Zemeckis's job, and so he, you know, he Richard Williams referred to always being in service of the brief, and so when I get a script. That's my brief. I'm in service of that brief. Now, sometimes you get a page where you look and you go, well, that isn't going to work at all. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's, it's very fortunate that you have a good relationship editorially, certainly with Lex and over the years with people I've worked with at DC and, 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 and uh, Boom and, and IDW and things like that, where you can be very frank in saying, OK, I need to move this around. I need to change mm -hmm. this and I need to do this. And I get it, you know, and talk to Jason and say, is this going to mess up? anything in the script and then there's that give and take and obviously uh, that was uh, that was such a an enormous part of the success of the silver age marvel comics sure uh, that you had on the dc side of things things that totally ossified there was such a a uh, a rigor mortis as it were with the edit the editorial edicts um from Kaniger and uh, Weisinger and all those people saying, you know, writers write, artists draw. Yeah, yeah. They don't mess with the script. They don't change anything. And, you know, Stan Lee, largely because he was working with such a depleted house and not really the money to lure over uh, more talent uh, in the writer's pool. And he was also editing all the books himself, you know, to turn that on its head and basically give the artist uh the freedom to plot and stage and then him to come back in and fill in the blanks that was revelatory and those comics have a freewheeling quality and an absolute breath of fresh air uh that simply didn't exist before now obviously at a certain point in time those aspects led to all the conflicts with certainly first with steve ditko uh wally wood and then of course jack kirby where the the artist you know rightfully is it feels deeply maligned because they're credited as a penciler when in essence outside of a few minutes of a plot conference they literally thought the whole thing up yeah and staged yeah. it and um and you know bless him stan never really got his head wrapped around yeah uh, that the idea frustrations that those people had 
but when it was all working, when they were all all working and firing, all the gears were firing, that's just a run of some of the best comics that no one will ever see that sort of thing again. Sure. Because it, as things have moved forward now, uh, you know, if you go to Barnes Noble or, or wherever and you look, nine times out of ten, when you pick up a graphic novel, the writer's name is in 72-point type, and the artist's name is in about eight-point type. I know, right? And, and I think that that this the 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 uh, in service of the what you would call the celebrity writer, Alan Moore, mm-hmm. uh, or or uh, in some cases people who are writer artists like Frank Miller, uh, in service of the the celebrity writer, that's just become the sales tactic. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate because, of course, anyone who's in the business can tell you, you know, if if Alan Moore had handed the killing joke to anybody but Brian Boland, it would be a totally different book. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have spoken of his his layouts, which are very, very in depth and detailed, much like, you know, Kurtzman's, which, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you're looking and you can understand why people like Wallywood had a certain amount of frustration working with Kurtzman because oh, sure. everything was spelled out for you and you weren't yeah. really allowed. I think only Will Elder was allowed to really deviate from yeah. those. Uh, very little, in fact. Yeah. Very little. Those yeah. tight layouts. And so that must have been, that's a, an extreme frustration there. So, you know, bringing it back full circle to what we were talking about with the Delry Prince, obviously Jim and, and Dale uh, had a lot of freedom to, uh, and as a result, those stories have a absolutely fractured, wacky quality to them. Like mm-hmm. the one where, where Charlie Brown gets trapped in like an F-15 that, yeah. you know, takes off and goes on an autopilot flight. You know, you're like, wait a minute. This is right. like a rich, rich comic book. What the heck happened here? You know? Yeah, yeah. Who's who's in charge? Of, who's in charge <laughs> of the ship? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. I think one of the things that makes uh, Peanuts different and, and unique in a sense is that it, it is both the personal expression of an artist, Charles Schultz. At the same time, it's that. It's also a mega media property. And right. and so you've got the two things that, generally speaking, run contrary to each other. It's like saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to take Cezanne and turn Cezanne into a, a multimedia property and get all these people to do, you know, a variety of Cezannes and keep the brand going. And at the same time, Cezanne is Cezanne and, and the work is unique to his personal vision. Nobody People can sort of understand and analyze and figure out how where it came from and then maybe make all kinds of variations of it. But the the challenge, I think, is is in the case of Peanuts is that you've got this property that is, you know, and the reason that such care has to be taken with it is because Charles Schultz was was working on an art form he was he had devoted his life and his inner being to, and it's revealed there on the page. And and when you carry it forward, not only are you carrying forward characters like Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and Snoopy that people love and revere, just like they love and revere Superman or Batman or Spider-Man. But unlike those characters, these characters are invested with a singular voice. And so you try to be true to that to that voice because it's, it's interesting. Uh, Art Spiegelman, uh, when Sparky passed away, Art Spiegelman wrote in a magazine, I'm Got it somewhere under a pile of 300,000 magazines, I'm sure. Uh, I think it was Spiegelman who wrote and said that to him, to his way of thinking, the most amazing aspect of Peanuts was that it managed to somehow 
be this merchandising machine, this um, this multimedia leviathan, this titan. And at the same time, it was the most personal expression yes. of one man that had ever somehow made, and, and nothing else on the comic book page has ever done that. And and certainly you, you look at you look at things that had come close and you can see where obviously uh, Bill Watterson has such a distaste for the potential of letting go that he stepped away rather than rather than face the possibility of the, everything of Calvin and Hobbes turning into this big old octopus that he couldn't control. And and even going back, you know, before uh, before Sparky, you know, there's the uh, in his studio when uh, Abner was at its, its zenith. Mm-hmm. Al Cap always had a, a sign up in the studio that said the strip comes first. It's interesting to look at, at Abner um, because in many respects, even though Al Cap used a much more uh, standard studio setup with ghosts and writers and help, it's it's still, he was the first you know, not the first, but he was up to that point certainly the most successful at taking those characters and moving them into other places, merchandising toys, schmoo toys, you know, uh, (laughs) dog patch theme parks and movies. I mean, there's a little Abner movie for Pete's sake and and, um, toys and comic books and things. And those sorts of things had happened before. Popeye is probably the best example otherwise. But, you know, at, at its peak... Abner was an extremely similar colossus in mm. terms of uh, a multimedia experience, uh, and but it was being produced in a much less uh, compacted, less uh, from the not not to say it this way, but it wasn't springing from one fountainhead, and it was it was a, a multitude of, of things, um, and and so yeah, it, it's it's a whole different experience. I mean, obviously, some people start out. You know, from the get-go, um, you know, uh, Dennis the Menace was always a team effort. You know, Beetle Bailey was always a team effort. And that that certainly has produced some amazing, amazing comic strips. But you've got to go back and you think about Sparky's heroes and you see where some of his attitudes, uh, you know, his, his off-quoted line about, well, Arnold, you know, Arnold Palmer doesn't let anybody, you know, come in and, you know, do his putts or chip his nine iron or whatever. Um right. But you go back and 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 in and in his probably extremely competitive way, that's about as much shade as he would throw at the Mort Walkers of the game or the the Al Caps of the game. Um, but you look back at, at, at his influences to Seeger or uh, Harriman and things like that, and those guys, um, you know, yes, uh, Seeger had you know, Bud Sagendorf assisting him and things like that. But it's it's a much more uh, personal kind of strip. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's and I think that he looked at that as a you know obviously he looked at it as seriously as a badge of honor and also because he was so uh, a combination of proud and 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 competitive that the idea of like having a team of 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 gag men helping him out he just couldn't you know and I mean that's kind of where. You know, he had that opportunity with um, with Sasseville with uh, "It's Only a Game," yeah. 
where you know he could have he could have just let it go and let Jim take the whole thing, and he decided to retire it because and I, I you know and it's very speculative to say why, but I, I'm sure some of the decision was the fact that that's just not the way he wanted to work on the strip. Obviously, at that point in his career, he was becoming so busy it wouldn't have been possible for him to to have drawn you know two strips that way you can look at the the uh, evolution um of that particular strip it's only a game and you can look at the beginning and you can see that sparky is really micromanaging everything and you can see towards the end he's really letting jim spread his wings with the, the layout and and the underdrawings and stuff like that I think maybe he also might have figured out pretty quick that that kind of a strip didn't exactly have the legs to hang around for 10 years. But once again, those are all purely speculative things. But I think the the, the cartooning heroes he had uh, were certainly their creations were much more individualized and much less uh, much less of, of a of a team effort. And and maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe it didn't, but. It, it certainly makes for an interesting thought. <laughs> <laughs> it does. You know, it's really striking the difference between, I mean, a number of cartoonists who who came around the time, that generation, that, that post-World War II generation. I suppose the, the closest to Schultz in mass media circulation, or at least in visibility, not mass media circulation, was Jules Pfeiffer. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, when I think about Johnny Hart or I think about Mort Walker or Dick Brown, these guys were working out of a different mindset. They were, you know, I think there was the, the word professional came before the word cartoonist in their mindset versus Charles Schultz. I think he had a different idea about what a cartoonist was. And and it it really plays out in this this ability of his to dig deep and and really delve into areas that the comic strip in general and mass media in general didn't usually go. You know, because well, it's it's fascinating that you bring uh, Dick Brown up because so many of those guys had their had dipped their toes in the water and they were making the bulk of their living prior mm-hmm. to syndication on Madison Avenue. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I, you know, Dick Brown, of course, was at uh, was it, uh, John, Jonestown and Cushing or whatever the, the big the, the, the agency that dealt with so many uh, famous cartoonists yeah. and and people who worked in comic books and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and that's of course how how uh, uh, he ended up on High and Lowest was because he was doing ads for uh, uh, J and C. And Mort Walker saw one and he was like, well, that's the guy I want, you know, and who drew that? And he had been fortunate enough for that one particular instance to actually sign his name. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, they they they, you know, he he ended up moving into syndication. So so many other cartoonists uh, there, at least at the beginnings of the bulk of their earnings was in things that weren't necessarily you know, the daily comic strip they were yeah. in advertising or they were in comic books. And yes, Sparky, you know, initially lettered comic books at night that were for European markets, as I recall. But to my knowledge, unless I'm wrong, I don't think Sparky ever drew a comic book. Yeah, it no. Something that was burning him up. He <laughs> wanted a syndicated comic strip. His focus, even though he started in gag cartooning, his focus was always that thing. And I think a lot of other cartoonists are perfectly happy 
to uh, sort of sample a lot of different things and, and wander mm-hmm. off and do, you know, greeting cards or wander mm-hmm. off and do, you know, production design or you know, mm-hmm. all those other things. And when you have something like that where it's such a singular focus, uh, it, it showcases itself. And also, even though, you know, for all intents and practical purposes, here's this guy who, to all to all appearances, is about as, as uh, for lack of a better term, about as square as you're going to get. You know, crew <laughs> cut and all, yeah. turtlenecks better, you yeah. know, dead five. Uh, this is still the first guy to my understanding, who ever had a cartoon character, uh, you know, the, 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 the daily strip with Lucy, where she's listening to the record, and it's Georgie Porgy put in pie, kissed the girls, made them cry, mm-hmm. when the boys went out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away, and of course Lucy picks up the uh, record and says, what a neurotic he must have been. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, that must be the very first time that anyone said the word neurotic, mm-hmm. In a comic strip, and then two seconds later, he's turned the the parody of the uh, he's turned the parody of the lemonade stand into the psychiatric booth, and he's created all of these things that are are literally about looking inward. You know, yeah. Linus's quest for security, yeah. uh, all of the the painful aspects of the unrequited love. These are themes that have been touched on a million times in, in comic books. But and, and and comic strips, but sure. never, never before in such a a uh, in in such a, a stripped bare manner in terms of such an aching uh, way. There's a, yeah. a the the peanut strip that as a child affected me most uh, is is a Sunday from the 50s, mm-hmm. and it's it manages to be funny. It has a slapstick ending. But the circumstances of the strip are absolutely vicious. And it's a Sunday where Charlie Brown is walking home from somewhere. And every situation he encounters, the children he encounters, are mean to him for no particular reason whatsoever. And he's walking along. He comes across, I think, Shermie and Pigpen. And they say, well, it's Charlie Brown. The friend of all mankind. And as he walked past, they laugh uproariously. And he's, he's obviously upset about that. And um, and at the end, of course, she encounters Lucy, who delivers the, the coup de grace and says, Hi, Charlie Brown. Is that your head? Or are you hiding behind a balloon? And he goes into the house and he takes his coat off and he sits down on the floor and he turns on his little AM radio. And the voice on the radio says, and what in all the world is more wonderful than the joyful laughter of little children? <laughs> and in the last panel, Charlie Brown kicks the the uh, kicks the radio, and there's a there's a there's a uh, peanuts at its best. Yeah. And I think this is for for the people who understand the strip, for the people who came to the strip before they came to any other versions. There are people, and it's perfectly fine. There are people for whom Snoopy is a stuffed animal. Yeah. That's all he is. He's a stuffed animal. You love him. He's cute. You hug him. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But Peanuts at its best is an absolutely nearly perfect balance between absurdity and an absolutely vicious, vicious deconstruction of how random and harsh life can be. Yeah. And how unfair it can be. And it's counterbalanced with these moments of affection and moments of absolute silliness. And that, to have all these tools, to have all those 
to have all those quiver bows in your quiver and to be able to use them and 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 make people care that way uh those are that's that's a that's a delicate that's a balancing act that not too many people have ever have ever man you know uh carl barks yeah he drawing uh, donald duck comic books are, are you familiar with a story called christmas for shacktown no i'm not christmas for shacktown is a uh i think it's a long form story it's a donald duck comic but almost all of his main characters are there uncle scrooge gladstone mm-hmm. or whatever and this the focus of the story is Huey, Dewey, and Louie are coming home before Christmas, and they go through a part of Duckburg called Shacktown, where all these poor children are, and they're suddenly moved to try to help them for Christmas. And the opening paragraph of text on the first page to have been created and produced and edited and seen print in a Dell comic you know, with their Dell stamp of approval, parent-friendly, this isn't going to upset your child sort of a thing. Barks' uh, first paragraph, uh, and I can't remember verbatim, but he says, you know, when all the other children are you know, looking for Christmas or waiting for Santa Claus or talking about presents or turkeys or something, and it comes to Christmas. But in Shacktown, Christmas is only, and, I forget, and I'm getting this wrong badly, but, but – uh, Christmas is only another bare, hungry, desperate day. And it is the most it, – it somehow manages to, to be the centerpiece of this wonderful, slapstick, joyous, goofy comic book with all these characters coming into play. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't sugarcoat. It doesn't mm-hmm. try to play with you that way. And that's what Peanuts doesn't do. Peanuts doesn't ever sugarcoat. Children are mean. You are going to ha- encounter people who will dislike you for no particular reason whatsoever. There are people out there who are going to be mean because they like being mean. Yeah. And you know what? That's the case. You know, and and you know what? You'll there are people that are wonderful, and there are people that it's a it's a big balancing act. Peanuts doesn't try to peanuts doesn't try to put a band aid over the aspects of life that hurt. Right. Schultz wanted anyone to forget how difficult childhood is he never forgot it he never forgot anything and he never you know it's like this the daily strip where uh, charlie it's an 80s strip where charlie brown and, and uh, linus are eating lunch and uh, <clears throat> charlie brown says oh, i remember that uh, that girl over there uh, uh last year i offered her a can half my candy bar and she just walked away and um i think linus says well what's her name and charlie brown says i i i don't know i i can't remember names but i never forget a slight <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, muted it's Sparky. I mean, all the all of the you know yeah. the the hurt from you know being turned down by uh, Donna Wald and the tragedy of his mother passing away mm-hmm. uh, and then immediately being drafted. Uh, all of those things they inform this. And you know, it's like Jackie Gleason said: you have to have. That's where the balancing act is. It can't just all be silly. You have to have pathos. You have to care, you know, whether it's, you know, Gleason talking about that or Chaplin or aspects of Laurel and Hardy. Uh, without that, it's a two-dimensional thing. And that's where where it, it's, you know, that was where uh, Al Cap was wrong. Ten years in or so, Al Cap uh, predicted the Peanuts would sort of peter out. You know, he famously said, well, it's a it's a funny little strip, and the kids are mean as hell. But you know that thing about the mean kids—you know that only lasts so long. Blah 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 blah. 
And uh, but that's a gross oversimplification of what the strip is about. Sure. You know, Barky said, of course, the initial theme was about the cruelty that exists between children. But that alone can't support something that lasts for 50 plus years. And, and certainly that's one of the one of the things that has to be handled very carefully with these modern iterations, which is to say uh, there's a, a certain tendency to uh, paper over some of those things uh, for good or ill. And, um, and and you could even see in the length of the strip and the run of the strip, you know, as Sparky aged, you know, you're much less likely to find Lucy actually beating the living daylights out of Linus <laughs> by the time you get to the 80s. Yeah. She's still Lucy, but mm. and Sparky's still Sparky, but your perspective on the world changes oh, as yeah. you yourself age and the, the characters age. And it's also fascinating to see how, as you know, Sparky's relationship with his own dog, Andy, mm. and towards the tail end of the strip, how in many respects there are a lot of... Um, meditations on the simple business of spending time with the dog and as a result you see snoopy doing something that he hadn't done for 20 plus years which is suddenly snoopy's back down on all fours again sometimes yeah, yeah. not all the time but often certainly and, when he's playing with charlie brown or he's yeah. laying with rerun or linus or whatever or he's walking around suddenly snoopy is finding himself in these dog-like situations yeah and that is something that Sparky wouldn't have done in a million years back in the 60s or 70s. No. When, when he propped him up on two feet, he was there to stay all the way through the 80s, uh, with, with a, a few exceptions. But, but at that point in the strip, as you move into the, the, the mid-90s or so, all of a sudden, once in a while, bang, Snoopy's down on all fours. And it's, it, it's, it's when you look at the strip as a whole, it's an ext it's an extremely understandable de-evolution. But just to pick those collections up every once in a while is a bit jarring uh, to see how those things are, 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 are playing out because he doesn't do that with any of the other dogs. He doesn't do it with Spike. Well, he doesn't do it with Spike or any other dogs because when they were created, everyone is firmly up on two feet. There's no bringing that care. Even when he introduces Andy as an actual character in the strip... He's uh, he's standing up on two on his hind legs, just like Snoopy would. Yeah. Uh, I've always found that fascinating uh, how that sort of thing happened. And much as in the same way, uh, towards the tail end of things, how Sparky rediscovers uh, rerun and rerun becomes in many cases becomes his voice at the end yeah. of the strip. Oh, he becomes an artist, which is yeah, we, yeah, he becomes that. becomes an artist. He's going going to make comic books he's going to do underground comics yeah. he's going to draw blackbeard and billy jean king and this that and the other and, and so, he's sticking to his own vision the teacher wants him to yeah. do one thing but rerun wants to do another which is charles schultz the medium and the the the, the syndicate whatever uh, the world wants one thing out of him but he's stubborn and sticking to his guns he's got a vision you know uh he's not going to draw pretty flowers that day he's going to draw a ship or whatever it was that rerun was drawing yeah. Exactly. I love that. And I, I, you know, one of the things that I love about the end of the strip is, are the things that you're calling to mind, which call to mind, you know, I think that as you reach, you know, a certain age, you, you know, that there are less days in front of the horse than those days behind. And, and, um, I think you begin to meditate on those things that are the simple things that are important in terms of life or what life is actually about you know what the essence of it is and something as simple as charlie brown sitting on the sofa with with snoopy 
laying over his lap or Charles Schultz sitting at home with Andy laying over his lap. Well, that can be as significant as as making uh, billions of dollars. It can be as significant as as uh, selling a, a syndicated comic strip. It's, well, at its, at its best, Peanuts is a, once again, a balancing act between big moments and small moments. Mm-hmm. And Sparky's meditations in the towards the last few years of the strip are are almost exclusively about small moments yeah Uh, some of the most touching strips of the 70s are small moment strips Mm -hmm. um there's nothing broad going on snoopy is not grabbing the blanket and spinning linus around and you know shooting him into orbit or anything it's charlie brown on one side of the tree and pepper patty on the other side of the tree those are that's probably one of the most well-remembered strips uh of, of the 70s is one that has not got a single, almost not nary a movement in it, and it's it's the one where uh, Charlie Brown and uh, Pepper and Patty are talking about uh, growing up and the difference between being an adult and a child. And Charlie Brown says, you know, when you're a little kid and you're coming home from somewhere mm-hmm. late at night, and you're in the back seat of the car, you can go yes. to sleep. And of course, you know, your mother and father are in the front. They have to worry about everything. You don't have to worry about anything. And then he says, but then you're grown up and then you can never sit in the back seat again and um, never, absolutely never. And then Pepper Petty says, hold my hand, Chuck. And that's the last. (laughs) And it's it is it somehow manages to be very funny, but it's also extremely melancholy uh, because because it's, um, uh, you know, I've compiled personally a little list. I never put these I never quite get around to doing anything with these lists, but I've always thought that the. I have a list of what I call the most frightening peanut strips. And that's one of them. Uh, a- here it is, the ubiquitous commercial for. So here it is, the ubiquitous. Here it is, the ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Here it is, the ubiquitous. Here it is, the ubiquitous ad for my my website, jeffgrogan.com. G e o f f g r o g a n dot com. Hey, you gotta go. No. One more time. One more time. We'll try to get this through and and, and try to say it. Mm, try to try to. <laughs> What am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? Go to my website. Go to my website, jeffgrogan.com. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-T-A-N.com. And look at my work. Go to my website. Read. You can't really read. Look at my stuff. Jeez. It's too pleading. Too, too, you know, whiny. I can't. Jeez. Well, Okay. Try it again. One more time. How many times can you say ubiquitous? Three times fast. Can you say ubiquitous three times fast? Ubiquitous. No, it's not going to work. Go to jeffgrogan.com. G-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Thanks. There's a, another strip of daily with, with uh, Linus, Lucy, and, and Rerun. And um, Lucy says to Rerun, why do we always teach little kids to say uh, goodbye? And Linus says, because people will be leaving him for the rest of his life. Ouch. And uh, the last panel rerun raises his hand and says, hello. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, it's 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 that one or or strips where uh, Sally is outside. And, come on, big brother. Come push me in the swing. I can't. I'm doing my homework. You better push me now. The years go by awfully fast and soon we'll both be grown up and I'll probably living in a different town. And then the last <laughs> panel, he's pushing her and he's mm-hmm. sighing. And uh, those are those kind of moments. That's that's extremely small small stuff but that minutia that Mm. understanding of uh the complexities and the fragile nature of things um those are those are the sorts of things that compared to the compared to his 
generally speaking, and once again, I'm not trying to say anything derogatory, compared to his peers in the Gagaday world, there's mm-hmm. nothing that nothing that touches that level of depth and and humanity. Yeah. And that doesn't diminish any of those other things. It doesn't no, take of course away not. joy or pleasure or uh, affection for those characters. But it's definitely it, it it's definitely not. They're not on the same playing field. No, they're no. just. Yeah, they're not. And and it's only in places like, well, as I said before, Pfeiffer, but Pfeiffer wasn't dealing with recurring characters. He didn't, Pfeiffer rejected the whole idea, really, of of uh, re- repeating characters and repeating scenarios. And, and you, some, I, but, think, I think that's why one of the great things about Pfeiffer, and, and also that's why I think it's so fondly remembered, uh, is the same sort of thing with the, the far side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, the far side... Uh, if I left to my left to my own devices, if you'd said, what are the three, if you asked me, what are the three best strips of the eighties, mm-hmm. excluding peanuts run. If, in my opinion, the three best strips of the eighties are far side, Bloom County and Calvin and Hobbes. Sure. Period. Absolutely. I consider, yep. I don't consider Garfield an eighties strip because it started in 78. Yeah. yeah and, think- and frankly, the first and, and er, in its earliest days, it feels like a seventies strip. It really does. And, uh, I think that uh, the first three to five years of Garfield are just marvelous um, and and a lot of fun. And I'm I, you can understand why it took over the comic. Yeah. Page, oh yeah. Uh, because it was it was in its own way quite uh, quite unique. But, sure. But the Far Side was such a, a marvelous, just like Pfeiffer. You know, it's the exact opposite of Schultz. Well, there's nothing there's nothing that's settling here. Every day is different. Mm-hmm. Every situation is different. And as Sparky used his tropes and poses to draw the reader in, so Pfeiffer and Larson, they're attracting your attention by the fact that, oh, yesterday was a strip about a family of cows going to the Grand Canyon. And today is a strip uh, about a couple of bears who've stolen a car. And you're like, you're drawn to the difference. You're drawn to the uniqueness, the difference. So once again, it, it's it's a and and that sort of thing comes around at the right time to be new and exciting in the comics page. Yeah. Uh, um, and 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 that's that's very refreshing, you know. And this is, you know, Bloom County took aspects of huge chunks of of Doonesbury. Yeah. But welded on this kind of whimsy. That was alien to Gary Trudeau. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it gave it a whole different life, a unique quality to it. I sort of strayed from where we were going, but that happens. <laughs> yeah, well, it's okay. It's perfectly fine. No, it's it's true. When, and when I think of the strips like that, like Bloom County or, uh, well, Farside, but Farside, you know, but Calvin and Hobbes, certainly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to think about Calvin and Hobbes because I suppose... Oh, this brings me to another thought, you know, about the heirs of Peanuts, you know, and and who are the heirs? And certainly there's some of, you can see Peanuts reveal itself in Bloom County here and there. You can see through the, you know, the veils of Doonesbury. Um, But you can also see, certainly you see Peanuts in Calvin and Hobbes. And yet Watterson doesn't go for, there's there's a, a truth and a reality and a, and a, a depth to Watterson's work, but it doesn't go really where Schultz's work 
goes. It's about this character. It's about maybe this the general narcissism and, and selfishness, uh, maybe at the center of of humankind, perhaps. Perhaps it, maybe it's ultimately a negative view of of the nature of of human beings. I don't know. When I think about Calvin, I I think of him as somewhat in some ways the epitome of the self-involved. You know, he's uh, he's Donald Trump as a little boy, and when I think about uh, you know, it doesn't delve into the broader arena and issues that Schultz does as much as I love Calvin and Hobbes and, and it, nothing to, you know, take away from it, but it was only 10 years. So you don't have the, in 10 years, Schultz hadn't, had, hadn't really stretched his wings, you know, entirely. And so well, you've got the whole. Yeah, you've got the whole thing where, you know, 10 years in and it's it's at the, uh, we, you know, he's nowhere near ready to display that. And, and I think part of what happens there is because Sparky always looked at something like Thimble Theater and said, well, there's a comic strip. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got a big cast. And I think Sparky was always experimenting. It's so clear. He's always experimenting with expanding the cast. Yes. He's always experimenting. Sometimes it fails. You get a Charlotte Braun. Yeah, uh, not, not everything is going to be a winner. Right. Um, sometimes it works, and you get Pepper and Patty and Roy, and then you get Whoopsie. Marcy, and then you get Franklin, and then you get uh, you know, Jose Peterson. I don't know, but um, but 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 I think Watterson obviously on a, very early on seems to have made a conscious decision that he's not going to do that. Yeah. So where yeah. whereas so it's 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 not so much a trap as it is simply a self-contained um you've you've created a construct that you're you're never going to get out of yeah and and you can make one of two decisions about that construct uh you can make a decision like uh more of a jim davis thing where you're like okay well i'm going to turn this into more of a a uh a uh hank ketchum style factory production Mm -hmm. and be very happy and make a lot of people very happy drawing a strip that basically is, for lack of a better term, hitting the same couple of notes every day. Yeah. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. No. Or you can do what Watterson did, which is build yourself that same box, but then reach a point where, well, I, I just can't do it anymore. Right. And he's not ever going to be able to just turn it into a, a gag-a-day factory and just let it go like that. So, and also, of course, you know, Watterson lamented, uh, lamented the one time he seems to have been tempted by that was, of course, with uh, Calvin's uncle, who is the only character besides, uh, you know, remember, of course, the mother and father don't actually have names. Right, right. Uncle actually having, is it Uncle Phil? I can't remember. Uh, The uncle has a name. And it it expands, and Watterson it was not comfortable with the way that series of strips played mm. out because he didn't want to focus on the outside world. No. He, didn't want, he doesn't want the strip looking outward. He wants it looking inward. And the downer there was that ultimately he reached a point where there uh, there's only so many things you can do. And obviously he had grown tired of the restrictions of the syndicated world. Mm. That was enough for him. He, he had it. He executed it. And by and large, with the exception of one, uh, one calendar that he'll probably be bitter about to his dying day. He managed to avoid 
uh, the merchandising aspect of things, which he had a, uh, which he of course had no interest in doing, and so he stepped away from the field, and it's an amazing success. It'll be long remembered. It's just two different people thinking about the same thing. You know, Carl Bark did comic books with Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge for 25 years. His retirement was largely because he said at one point, the, the you know the the imagination is not a bottomless pit. Ah. And at a certain point in time, you you kind of go dry, and mm. uh, I mean that's the reason why that's the reason why there's only one season of half hour honeymooners episodes. The classic thirty nine is that Gleason had already by the time nineteen fifty five was there for that season, he'd been doing the honeymooners since nineteen fifty one or fifty two, and he had already started with the writers repeating ideas. We cannot do another season like this. We're already and you know years. As the years went on in his variety show, he would bring the honeymooners back for special episodes or little 10 minute sketches or things. But he never again explored right. the idea of doing uh, another season of half hours because the same thing It's like, I like these characters. I don't want to denigrate them. And uh, if the scenes don't feel true. And I think that was, you know, as much as the uh, the 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 uh, behind the scenes wrangling with the syndicates and obviously uh, this has been beaten to death, but, uh, uh, you know, it was on Watterson's end. I'm sure it was nothing but nonstop fighting. And from the syndicate's point of view, they were looking at it like, come on, a coffee cup, a stuffed Hobbs. I mean, they would have literally made billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hand over fist. And yeah. so at the end of it, nobody was really happy with anybody. And yeah. uh, I think, you know, Watterson did a great job of not letting that, you know, poison the water. Uh, it would have been very easy to have, have uh, let that bitterness kind of spill onto the page. Uh, but it is interesting to see that I'll, even though, and, and of course, the last Sunday, oh, and on so, a very hopeful note uh, and, and a very positive uh, note about the journey. But a lot of the strips, a lot of the Sundays leading up to that feature uh, Calvin by himself without Hobbes. And they're they're kind of quiet, sad little things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can see into the in maybe into the mind of what's going on. Uh, you know, the Sparky said that, you know, the having a syndicated comic strip is like having a, a theme to write for school every day, every day, uh, yeah. day a week, you know, and uh, I think that uh, anyone who can, uh, who is uh, lucky enough, uh, smart enough to find their way into this medium and make a living doing that every day, uh, even if their art or writing isn't your bag. They're marathon men and women. It's it's a, a like nothing else, uh, and I, I've never experienced it myself, but I know enough people who do it that I have nothing but admiration for them. Uh, every last one of them. It's just interesting that we 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 are you know talking about uh, the absolute zenith, yeah, uh, of an industry that has all kinds of peaks and all kinds of valleys. Sure, like anything else, and the reality of it is there's so many different approaches to the same form, to the same medium, and there's a variety of, of <laughs> nutrients in each one and, and value in each one. And you know, there there's a wonderful quality to what Mort Walker did over the course of 50, 60 years, uh, the same as there is uh, in Calvin and Hobbes and there is in Bloom County and there is in, you know, in Kathy and, and in For Better or Worse or so many different strips. And oh, so many, yeah. Yeah, so many I mean, things too. And so it's funny that you mentioned about the, uh, you know, the, the the people who owe, uh, who would look to Sparky. Yeah. I mean, if you look, you look at, uh, you know, Lynn Johnston, and and, and yeah. for better or for worse, I mean, there's a, 
a marvelous combination of of sort of a, of a humor strip, and there are certain aspects of it that are more of a soap opera strip. But yeah. Sparky is just all over that thing in terms yeah. of introducing new characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, the unique quality she had was, of course, allowing the characters to age out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, marvelous storytelling, and mm -hmm. and and you know, uh, and and you know, Sparky counted Kathy Geiswhite as one of yeah. his dearest friends. He, of course, never understood why Kathy didn't have a nose, but, uh, <laughs> but at the same time. There's a, in terms of the, the setup, you know, Sparky's innovation, of course, was putting the punchline in the third panel, not the fourth panel. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at, at, at Seeger or you look at a lot of the contemporaries in the early days of the, the gag strip, it, typically speaking, what happens is the punchline is, is in the last panel and the reaction is in that same panel. Mm -hmm. Popeye says something or Wimpy says something and of course the other characters are literally falling out of the panel and you see their feet as they flop back in some mm -hmm. sort of a of a of a silent movie era reaction to uh, something like that. <laughs> but, you know, then of course Sparky puts it on his head and and then gets it gets that reaction gets the reaction in the fourth panel. And the reaction more often than not is an absolutely subdued reaction. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But those changes are almost always reflected in in the the, the modern uh, gag strips. Marvelous stuff like uh, uh, Curtis, great stuff. Ray Billingsley. And, oh and yeah, sure. A lot of that, and um, uh, the the way that he paces his gags, uh, things like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of peanuts in there. That's you know just below the surface in, in, in so many modern strips. Mutz obviously owes a lot. Oh to yeah, Mutz owes a lot. To, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, I've just started to after a conversation I had with Pat Sandy of a strip called Next Door Neighbors. I, I've just um and and Pat's a great guy and that strips on Go Comics. I just sat back and started to read read my collections of early Doonesbury again. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm starting right at the beginning. And, you know, it's it's really fascinating how, while we're talking about a different context and different kinds of characters, the the rhythm of Trudeau's uh, comedy owes a lot to the rhythm of Peanuts. You know, oh, yeah. So the way Schultz laid out a joke, also the the way he used language, the kinds of very low key humor uh, and sarcastic humor that would be introduced in in Peanuts. That's all. It's reflected in those very early Doonesbury strips, you know, very clearly. Yep. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, like you said, that that layer of that level of sarcasm, uh, not many cartoonists can can utilize that. Mm. And and also counterbalance it with the the broader, more farcical moments. Yeah. Uh, and and as a result, you know, you don't really see very much of that. Uh, certainly not in other strips in the seventies. Uh, yeah. In the eighties, maybe more so. But um, yeah, but less yeah, so. And, and certainly, obviously, in its own way, um, there's a certain amount of. I, I think, like anything else, you know, no one does. No one does anything in a vacuum even right. if people are not going to consciously admit it they're looking at their peers work and it informs it. and i'm sure it, it did the same thing to sparky too oh yes you know, he, he would it was extremely proud of the ownership of the ideas so maybe not in a more obvious way but um you know i i, I seem to remember uh reading somewhere walker had said that you know when 
when Snoopy started doing the World War One Flying Ace thing, that he and Dick Brown and a bunch of the, the writers he worked with got together and they were like trying to analyze why this is working. <laughs> it's funny. And because it really, if you think about it, it's so uh, bizarre. It's and so, so off the wall. Off the cuff. Yeah. That it absolutely must have befuddled uh, all the other guys who were working in the game who were doing, you know, situational stuff with, uh, you know, um, you know, high and lowest where it's, you know, gags about thirsty thirst and, you know, uh, his wife hitting him with a frying pan because he's drunk yeah. again, something like that. And by the way, I like thirsty a lot, but I wish in the modern version of high and lowest, he still had the little lines on his nose. To I, drunk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I miss those every time. I'm like, God, we know he's still drunk. Where are the lines? You send a message to Chris Brown, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, now Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown came out last year, and you're working on a new book. We are. We are. Uh, it should be out in uh, October, I think. It's. Uh, it's called. It, it's. You know, obviously, right now, with the uh, anniversary of uh, Peanuts's long affiliation with NASA. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of content produced this year. As a matter of fact, you can go to McDonald's right now and get a Happy Meal uh, <laughs> that's about Snoopy and NASA, and there's a little Snoopy toy and a little book. But it's it's a, a marvelous little Snoopy book about Snoopy going to the moon. And so so right now there's a lot of of Snoopy and NASA yeah. tie-ins. Yeah. And, and so the this particular graphic novel is called a Snoopy, a Beagle of Mars. Okay. And so uh, it's about Snoopy's adventures. Uh, and his uh, going to Mars. Of course, he doesn't actually get to Mars, but that's typical Snoopy stuff. And uh, it's the same format as Race for Your Life. It's an 86-page graphic novel, and it was written by uh, Jason at the the studio, and uh, uh, and Lex edited it, and uh, it's it's neat. It's 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 got a slightly different vibe because it's a uh, it's a, a a from scratch story. Yeah, it's original but material. In, in, in the same respect, there's a great deal of familiarity to it because lots of the circumstances and sequences are gently lifted and modified from strips mm-hmm. that have already come before, which mm-hmm. is the way that things work, particularly with the children's books for Simon Spotlight. Um uh, like uh, uh, I, I did, we did one called uh, "Lose the Blanket Linus" a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it was an ex- it was kind of an extrapolation and a combination of the series of strips where uh, where Lucy buries Linus's blanket, uh, and so oh, yeah. we're, we're taking things in such a way so that we're we're we did one called um, "Nice to Meet You, Franklin," and it was a a children's book adaptation of the first couple of weeks of Franklin strips where he goes to Charlie Brown's neighborhood. And, and so, uh, we, so we're working from existing material, but it's not Photoshop. We're not just copying it over. We're trying, things have to be adjusted a little bit for the age and reading levels. And some things have to be kind of, uh, compressed or uh, expanded upon just because of the size of the book. But my challenge there, of course, is to, to take what has been, to take a story that's already been drawn, yeah, and then not just 
trace over it and stick it into a book. So in, if you recall in the, uh, in the strip, uh, when Char when Charlie Brown first encounters Franklin at the beach, he gets the beach ball back to him and right. the castle. So I'm looking to try to create different angles, different tableaus, things like that. Yeah. And of course there's the, the marvelous, marvelous strip where Franklin shows up at, uh, and Charlie Brown's out. So he meets Linus and Linus shakes Franklin's hand. Well, I had to draw that too, but I thought what, so what will, what I'll try to do to think to it, to make it a bit to me interesting and not just a, make me sort of a Xerox of the strip is I change tiny things around little things in a way that I hope is extremely respectful and true to the source material. So in my, in, in our Simon spotlight book, when Charlie Brown meets Franklin in on the beach, Franklin and Charlie Brown shake hands. There's a tiny yeah. bit of modification. And then when Linus uh, meets, I was able to stage the scene a little bit differently just because I didn't, I, not to mention, I didn't want to just copy what Sparky drew because that's that's really it's not going to look as good if they just if they just take his drawing and Xerox it and stick it in a book. Uh, but what happens a lot of times is like we did uh, a book call a few years ago called uh, "You Got to Rock Charlie Brown," and it's it's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown, but it's told almost from start to finish from Charlie Brown's perspective. Linus until the last two pages of the book and uh, in doing that you I was I was challenged and it was exciting to draw it because you realize well the the narrative structure of of Great Pumpkin was outside of a few strips never really uh, conveyed in the strip itself right, the strip right. this that were the foundation were all from Linus's point of view with Sally well, Linus and Sally aren't in this part of the story at all. It's just the kids going out trick-or-treating and Charlie Brown gets a rock and, and this, that, and the other. And so it's shown from Charlie Brown's perspective. So I was in that case really taking scenes from the animated special and trying to make them look like they had been drawn by Sparky in 1960. Oh, okay. Wow. So interesting challenges that come up in the, these books. And so I, that that one. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention was the stylistically. Then you know you talked about race for your Char life, Charlie Brown, being you know late '60s, early '70s kind of look that you were sort of trying to coalesce around. And yet now we're talking about Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and the strips were in the early '60s, well prior to the animated special in '66, I guess. So you're mm -hmm. working with a style that that is earlier. Are you trying to? And, and as you said, their necks were thicker, you know, they're shorter and younger and, and all of that. Were you were you trying to work with that approach or were you still, you know, working with that later 60s, early 70s approach? I would probably say I was still probably trying to make it. I was con unconsciously drawing them like they were in the later 60s, partially because it was easier uh -huh. to I'll, partially just because that's the vibe I've gotten into. OK. And, Partially because since Sally and Linus didn't show up anywhere in the story, like I said, Linus shows up in the last page or two, uh, and Sally is nowhere to be seen. Uh, I wasn't going back and re-referencing those strips from the early right. '60s, so they weren't in my, they weren't in the frontal lobe right. at that moment in time. So I wasn't being inspired by them. 
right. I was being more inspired by the later 60s material. And also some of the looseness in the animation itself had right. crept in there. So, well, and also that it allows you to be more, you know, if you're too tied down to the source material, the original source material, then it's too inhibiting and, and you can't bring life to the drawing. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. So uh, the title of that one, again, is You've Got to Rock, Charlie Brown. Uh, you Got to Rock, Charlie Brown. That's a Simon Spotlight book. It's, it's okay. a, that's that's their early, early readers series or something, I believe it's called. And that's typically like, you know, first first grade reading level second grade mm -hmm. reading level something like that yeah, but so I short, love... short sentences but fun illustrations yeah i'd love to see what you did with that so i'm going to search for that book because yeah, I, I am kind of interested in that approach that you know okay here's the story let's take it from charlie brown's point of view and i think that's really cool if you go on the simon and schuster website mm -hmm. and you type my name in uh, it, it's kind of goofy. It comes up as an author's page, and I'm like, I'm not an author, but that's what <laughs> come up as. So it's, it comes up as the author's page, and it's a full accounting of all the books that I've done, and oh. um, you know, some of them are uh, they're, they're different sizes and different formats. Most of them are fairly, short, uh, but some of them have been baseball. There was one called uh, Make the Make a Trade, Charlie Brown, okay. and it was uh, an extrapolation of two different stories. The one where Charlie Brown trades. Uh, Snoopy to Peppermint Patty, and then <laughs> yes. later strips where Charlie Brown and Peppermint Patty trade Lucy and Marcy. Those two stories were sort of mushed together to make one longer format book. Uh, that's Those kind of books are usually called a six by nine. They're oh, six right. wide and nine high, so they're, they're challenging too because they're more vertical than horizontal, and as we know, Peanuts is not more vertical than horizontal. <laughs> right. So, uh, they create all kinds of, of uh, interesting challenges. Uh, uh, nice to meet you, Franklin, is what's called an 8x8, eight eight, so it's perfectly square. That's an easier format to, to draw in. Um, but yeah, I've, I've done a whole bunch of books for Simon, and, and they're, they're a lot of fun. Uh, just very colorful books. Okay, so listeners, check out Robert's work on Robert Pope on Simon and Schuster, and uh, and look for his author's page. Uh, it should be <laughs> such, as, such it as it were. Yeah, but uh, that's great. I, I encourage people to do that. Well, Robert, this has been amazing. Uh, such a wonderful discussion and so much to, to so much ground that you've covered. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your, your insights, your views, uh, on the material with us. Um, I would like to, at some point or another, talk more just about you and, uh, and your career again, but I think we've, we've really, wow, just covered a lot of time ah! today. You know what? I always, uh, I always like to, uh, I always like to wrap it up knowing that I didn't spend two hours talking about myself. I know, but it would be really, I think people would be very, oh, on the one hand, yes, this is a Charles Schultz tribute podcast, but at the same time, it is discussion with cartoonists. And although we've talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of cartooning along the way, uh, I also think, you know, your, your work and your life as a cartoonist and the, the road that you've traveled uh, has been a very interesting one. So at some point or another, we'll have to read visit this and and then we'll have to spend an hour or so talking about you anytime okay great 
I know you've heard it before, but I'm saying it again. Go to jeffgrogan.com, G-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Read Spiking the Lens. Go to spikingthelens.com. That's my latest comic strip. It's a really cool comic strip about three actresses living in Los Angeles. Actually, it's two actresses. Well, actually, two actresses and one has-been actress and one writer. And then there's this little short guy who runs a laundromat. So uh, go to my website, spikingthelens.com, and check it out. Read that. Follow me on Instagram at grogangeff.com. It's not Jeff Grogan because there's another one on Instagram named Jeff Grogan. So uh, don't do that. But follow Grogan Jeff. That's at Grogan Jeff on Instagram. All my neat stuff is there so you get to keep up with when the new shows come out. That'll tell you then. Check me out on Instagram at Grogan Jeff, uh, whatever the heck it is. And uh, uh, what else is there? What, 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 do I have something else to say? Jeez, uh, um, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm going to leave you alone. Go to GroganJeff.com. No, it's JeffGrogan.com. If you'd like to know more about Robert Pope and Robert Pope's work on Peanuts characters, check out the Simon & Schuster website and look up Robert on the author's page. A whole host of Peanuts books for kids will pop up there, and you'll get an idea. Maybe there'll be something there you want to pick up for a young person you know or somebody who's just starting to read. I think there's no better way. Hey, that's how I learned to read, right? Reading comics and reading Peanuts books. So, uh... That's that's uh, introduce a young person to peanuts today. How about that? Uh, you can also find Robert's work on Amazon, uh, but better yet, go to an independent bookstore near you and, and search out uh, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, and maybe order Snoopy a Beagle of Mars. That's coming out really soon. So thanks to Robert. And let's see, what's going on now? It's fall, right? Fall and the leaves are falling. It is fall like in earnest, right? Uh, the leaves are turning color. Like every day, it seems like you know, green is sh- shifted to ochre and to gold and to to orange and flaming red. It's like a beautiful time of year, and it's starting to get cooler, and and the light is leaving earlier in the day. And and uh, so we headed out to my favorite, one of my favorite places over the weekend, the cider mill in Endicott, New York, to pick up some. Uh, some donuts, which I've told you about before. They're the greatest donuts in the galaxy. And uh, especially when you get them fresh out of the, the fryer, they are awesome. And uh, we picked up pumpkins because we're going to put out pumpkins this year. Uh, they are great pumpkins, too. Really big. And uh, then we got some mums, of course. Got to get mums. And uh, some, uh, what, what else did we get? A whole variety of little pumpkins and apples. Apples galore. Max are my favorite. So, uh, But to each his own. And uh, as far as apples go. But um, I also, uh, as far as, as, as well as uh, fall treats, uh, this weekend brought the Peanuts Papers in the mail. I, I placed an early order for the book, and I got that uh, this week. And it's filled with essays about our favorite subject, um, Charles Schultz and Peanuts, by a whole host of wonderful writers, including the cartoonists Seth and Chris Ware. I haven't read uh, the cartoonist contributions yet, but I've, I've started, you know, uh, well, tourist that I am, I began at the beginning, and I'm starting to, to read uh, essay one, two, and three. And, and they are uh, really, gosh, these, these folks are really insightful. They have lots to say. It's a wonderful book, as far as I can tell so far, and uh, I'm enjoying every minute of it. Uh, it's, it's adding insight to my own understanding of Peanuts, and it's always interesting to hear what other people have to say about a subject like Peanuts and 
and the things that they pick up on that you both that are both new to you and that you recognize in your own appreciation of the strip. So uh, I encourage you to search it out, the Peanuts Papers. Uh, I'm going to enjoy reading it over the next couple of weeks. So what have we got coming up? What do we have coming up? I have no idea. Uh, I'm working on something for October, and uh, we'll see if we can get that together in time. So uh, drop me a line at jeffgcomics at gmail.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-Comics, uh, G-E-O-F-F-G-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of the show. If you've got questions or suggestions for guests, if you happen to live next door to a cartoonist who you think ought to be on the show, please let me know. Uh, maybe you've got connections with some big-time people that I, uh, I can't. I try to reach out to a few, but... They're distant and far away and hard to get a hold of. and uh, So maybe you've got an in. <laughs> Let me know. Because uh, I'd love to, to, you know, to have everybody on the show who's really a Peanuts fan and who's working in the field. So uh, we want to talk comics with those people who are making comics. And anyway, so, uh, yeah, drop me a line, okay? Let me know. And, um... What else did I want to say? Hey, you know, it's about that time of year. It's not quite time for the Great Pumpkin, right? We're not in, in October yet, but I know what, you know what started this last couple of weeks. It's football season. It's football season, and Lucy is going to be holding that ball, and Charlie Brown is going to be thinking about, should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? Oh, man, thinking about it. Just, uh, you know, every time I want him to kick that football. And maybe this time, maybe this year, we'll see. Well, wherever you are, I hope you get to kick the football. And uh, uh, metaphorically, as well as, you know, I mean, at my age, it's got to be. <laughs> metaphorically, it's not, not literal. There's, I don't own a football at this point in my life. Had a, I've had several, but, you know, not, not now. So anyway, um, but I hope metaphorically, yes, you get to kick the football. <laughs> and... Uh, Having said that, I think it's time I'd better get off uh, this this microphone and uh, say farewell. So long. See you next time. And once again, thanks for listening. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, uh, what, what the heck was it? I'm losing my mind. Apple Podcasts. You got to go to Apple Podcasts. Hey, some of you have been. Hey, that's great. I'm really appreciative of, uh, of, of that. You know, somebody somebody's gone to Apple Podcasts and written me a nice review and done the whole five star thing, and and it means that you know, uh, it, it makes me feel good. So thank you so much, and and uh, please everybody do that. Uh, boy, oh boy, I just it's almost as good as donuts.